Thanks, KT. Um, good morning, everyone. My name is Kenton Bryce. I am uh, one of the elders here at Providence Road. It's so great to be back. Uh, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and so it's good to see everybody's faces. Um, and for all you new people in the room, welcome. Welcome to Providence Road. Uh, we're so glad that you have decided to worship with us uh, this morning. I pray that you would come back and uh, engage with us. Uh, more. Um, I am going to uh, preach through this passage that KT just read. Yes, it's very long, but we're going to break it down and hopefully get through it this morning within an hour. I'm just kidding. Um, maybe two hours. No laughing. Wow. Okay. So this is good. You're like my students. Um, this is great. Uh, no, but I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to get into the scripture. And uh, when I preach, I really encourage you to pray for me when I pray. And so uh, please pray that uh, the Lord would use this 30 minutes that we have together to illuminate his word to you, to me, to all of us, so that we uh, may know him more and be more um, just formed by him. So I'm going to pray, and as I pray, please pray for me as well. Uh, Father God, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much for the ability to come uh, before you this morning freely, to gather freely uh, in this church. Uh, Lord, I pray for uh, the next uh, half hour, God, that it would be uh, a pleasing aroma to you, Father, that uh, you would use me to speak your word uh, to us as a church. Uh, Lord, I pray if there's anything that comes out of my mouth that you want us to hear, Father, I pray that it be quickly remembered, uh, that it would cut to our hearts. But Lord, if there's anything that comes out of my mouth that is not from you, Father, I pray that it would be forgotten quickly. Uh, Lord, that uh, this time would be a time for you to speak to us from your word, uh, just using me as a vessel for that. So, Lord, I, I pray for that. I pray for this next half hour, Lord, that you would be glorified. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So, uh, Jay uh, preached last week. So, Jay Freimeyer is one of the pastors here. He's uh, on vacation this week, and he really set the stage for where we are in John. And so, we're in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 50. And really, this is the last time that Jesus is publicly going to preach. Everything in John after this is an intimate zoom in for his conversation with the disciples in the final week of his life, and then his arrest his crucifixion, and his resurrection. But this is the last time before all that happens that he's publicly preaching. Uh, and so we see in this, in this long passage here, there are really three phases uh, of what's going to happen. Uh, first is an interaction with a crowd. Right? Jesus is going to interact with the crowd maybe for the last time. And then John's going to give us kind of a kind of uncover and show us why people are not believing. And then in the last phase, it's going to be this final plea from Jesus publicly to believe that he is the Messiah. And so that's kind of the stage that's set before us. You know, Jesus uh, has come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. People were uh, putting palm branches in front of him, laying them down as a signal that he is the new coming king of Israel, yelling out, Hosanna in the highest, come save us. But they kind of missed it. They were, they were thinking, let's save us from the Romans, not save us from ourselves and our sin, right? And so uh, that's where we're at. And then Jesus gives this little sermon. He's like, I'm going to die, basically. He's like, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, right? And so all of a sudden, people are like, wait, hold on, time out. You know, the Messiah is not supposed to die. We even see that in this passage. Uh, so that's where we are. 
And I think what John is trying to do here by uh, writing at this stage, he's really trying to press in Jesus' urgency that we would believe that he is Messiah, right? There's some urgency through this message, and that's what I want you to hear this morning, that urgency, but I also want you to hear some of his heart, right? It's going to be filled with uh, mercy and grace and truth, all kind of wrapped together in these three phases. So let's go over the first phase. Uh, and so in this first little piece, Jesus knows his time has come, right? That was the great shift from the last two weeks of preaching. Jesus throughout John already has said, uh, my hour has not yet come. And then all of a sudden it just pivots when the Greeks ask to see him. He goes, my hour is, has come, right? It's, it's on, right? It's on. It's game time. Uh, and so... He, he then goes through this, like, this one little statement that just reveals his heart. In verse 27, he starts this whole thing by saying, now my soul is troubled. Jesus starts off everything by revealing his humanity. He is troubled about what's about to happen. You know, in the other gospels, the other three, we see Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's, he's praying, and he's so troubled and grieved that he's sweating blood, Right? That's private. That's intimate. But here publicly, he is pronouncing to everyone, to a crowd, that he is troubled. Um, and a lot of us would think, yeah, absolutely, he's troubled. He's about to die. <laughs> so if you knew you were going to be crucified a criminal's death for something you did not do, I think you would be troubled, right? But there's more to it. There's a more of why he's troubled, why Jesus' soul is troubled, because he's God, right? We've seen throughout John, Jesus is God. And so why is he troubled? Well, he is about to do something that God has never done before. He's going to take on all of the sin of humanity for all time on himself and die. And so that's why his soul is troubled. The act he's about to do is saving all of humanity from our sin so we can come back into right relationship with God. And he knows for the first time and the only time in all of eternity Jesus is about to experience the effects of sin on himself and be disconnected from the Trinity, right, from God for the first time. The Father's going to turn his back on him when he dies on the cross because of that sin. Now, it doesn't stop there, obviously, right? Praise the Lord, he's resurrected and lives today at the right hand of the Father so that we can have that same hope. But this is troubling him. And I love what he does here. Uh, and so Jesus, what he does is, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Right, kind of rhetorical. Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Right, feel the gravity of his statement. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So Jesus troubled to his soul, right? Man, God, the God-man in the flesh. He is troubled to his soul, and his response is to look towards the glory of God. Not to his own sufficiency, not to his own ability, but to God's glory. It is his ultimate purpose. It's what he keeps in mind to drive him forward, because he knows through his saving work on the cross that it is going to bring God immense glory, all of scripture is about to be fulfilled in him, and God is going to be glorified. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord is not about Jesus. It's not about us. That's about a big, massive, huge God, 
that loved the world so much that he would give his only begotten son so that we could be heirs into his kingdom. Is that amazing news? That's amazing news that we get to partake in that. And we have a big God that wants to be glory. That's how he receives glory for redeeming people. He does not receive glory from judging people. He receives glory from redeeming people. Jesus' work on the cross is what glorifies God, and Jesus has it fully in mind the whole time. So the crazy thing about this scene, I would love, I was talking to my wife Ashley last night about this, I would love to be there, right? And then I'd also probably not like to be there. But um, there's a scene, Jesus is telling the crowd, I'm doing this for God's glory, and then all of a sudden a voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again impactful, massive, right? This is the second time maybe or the third time that we've heard in John that the voice of heaven speaks to Jesus. But now Jesus is like, it's not for me. It's for your sake. This, because the people are so confused, right? The crowd is sitting there like, did you hear that? What was that? Something just came over a loudspeaker, but we don't have loudspeakers yet, right? What's going on? And it's like, Oh, wait, maybe that was thunder. I don't know. Remember, this is AD, like 30-something. There's no loudspeakers. There's no PA systems. There's no microphones. And so if a voice comes from heaven, people just, it totally wrecks their entire perception of how the world works. And they're like, is that thunder? Some people said, no, that's an angel speaking to him. And Jesus is real quick to lay down some little bit of truth for them. Say, that was not for me. That was for you. And then he has three statements that he, he says right after this, right? Setting the stage of what's about to happen. He goes, that was not for my sake, but for your sake. And he goes, three, three statements. He goes, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler be, of the world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so Jesus is quick to say, yes, that voice that you just heard was not for my benefit. It was for you so that you would believe that three things are about to happen. First, the power of this world is about to lose its power over you. My death on the cross and my resurrection is going to destroy the power of Satan that he has over you. Amazing news for a people that were under such rule and reign from the spirit of darkness, right? Do we feel that still? If you feel like you are under the weight of the world, go to Jesus. He is saying, my work on the cross was so that you don't have to be under that weight. It has no power under you if you were under Jesus. He goes, and I'm going to cast out Satan. The ruler of this world will be cast out through my work. And then finally, he says, how am I going to do it? I'm going to be lifted up. The son of man is going to be lifted up, and I'm going to draw all people into myself, right? So a couple of observations about this last one. This is the positive statement to the two previous negative statements. He says, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die as I'm lifted up so that the judgment of the world is over and Satan is cast out and you can have freedom, right? You can finally be free. You've been waiting for it for generations. You can finally be free. And so it's crazy uh, for another reason, it says, and I will draw all people to myself, all people. Go throughout all of Scripture. So for the, the Israelites at this time, it should have been another marker of this is the Messiah, right? This is the person who's to bring all nations, tribes, tongues, peoples to him, right? I'm going to draw all people. And it's incredible he uses the word draw, right? The cross is to be attractive to everyone, 
right? I think what happens over time, uh, especially in my life, I look at the cross as maybe a burden I have to carry. Yes, it, I mean, there's scripture about that, but it should attract me, right? The cross of Jesus is supposed to be attracting the entire world. Do you want salvation? Go to the cross. The cross is beckoning you to come to it, right? But yet we put up walls. We're the one kind of stiff-arming Jesus' work on the cross, just open yourselves up to what he has for you because it's freedom, it's joy, it's amazing. It's the kingdom of God. It's the most glorious being ever inviting you into a relationship, drawing you into a relationship. So why, why stiff arm it, right? What, what's your hang up, right? Look at Jesus through the scriptures of the mercy he brings and what he's about to do in the rest of this passage, right? And so it's funny because the crowd is still, they're still confused, right? I think we're still confused sometimes about the cross. We can be. And they're still like, wait, what is going on? Like in our reading of the scripture, the son of man doesn't die. The Messiah doesn't die. And obviously missing a few pieces of the Old Testament, uh, you know, especially, I don't know, Genesis 3 when, uh, you know, the, the offspring's going to rise up and somebody's going to strike his heel and then he's going to crush the head of that serpent, right? Which is basically what Jesus is saying right here. And so they're still confused. And then Jesus is like, stop, stop the confusion. Just believe in me and walk in light, Right? He appeals again to light. So the serpent being lifted up is from, uh, I'm sorry, him being lifted up is him again going back to the image of Moses lifting up the serpent that he talked about in John 3. And then he talks about light again, which he talked about in John 8. And so he's appealing to these same things of saying, I am the Messiah, walk in my light, and then all things will be revealed to you. While you have the light, believe in the light. I'm only here for a short amount of time. This is his last public preaching. He is, he is just, oh, he's pleading with them to believe in him, right? And they're still not getting it. And here's the, here's the crazy thing. So we, as we go into phase two, we kind of get an understanding of why, why people were not believing in him. And I think John lays out a couple of things for us. And for me, these are some very hard verses, personally, uh, to read through, um, but it's truth, right? And so a lot of this message today is going to be about grace and truth. And so John just says this. He goes, when Jesus said these things, he departed uh, and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, talking about the crowd, they still did not believe in him. And Jesus is sitting there unpacking all of the Old Testament saying, this is the Messiah. I am the Messiah. Believe in me. Have freedom. Have joy. Have everlasting life. Have eternal life. And they still won't. I'm raising people from the dead. I'm making blind people see. What else do I have to do, right? Uh, if I were Jesus, that's what I would be like. But thank God I'm not Jesus. Um, <clears throat> it says, Lord, who has... And so John gives us this little bitty statement in here. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. Why? So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The reason people did not believe was to fulfill the Old Testament, to actually prove that he is Messiah. Now, we don't have enough time this morning to go through the doctrine of predestination. And um, if you guys want to talk about that, awesome. I would love to have that chat. We just don't have time. But just see this one little piece of this right here. The reason people were not believing is to prove that Jesus was who he said he was, right? Because he says at the bookend of all these verses, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. 
talking about Jesus. John is connecting Isaiah's prophecy with Jesus, saying, hey, even when it says people are not going to believe, that points to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. So even John, through this, is still trying to get people to believe the people that are reading his letter. Right? We know from the context of John, we've said it over and over and over in this series, the purpose of John writing this letter was that people would believe. Right? And so he's doing it over again. He's not doing it to have some doctrine of predestination. He's saying, no, listen, the reason why the crowd was not believing in him was to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. If you still have any qualms about Jesus being the Messiah, he is. Look, Look, the Old Testament said this was happen, and it's happening, right? We see it over and over and over again. So we even have truth pointing to the fact that Jesus is Messiah. But there's a crazy statement in verse 42, and I love this word uh, in this passage because it gives me an immense amount of hope in multiple ways, and we'll talk through a few of those. He says, nevertheless, okay, even though many did not believe in him to fulfill the scriptures. However, although, nevertheless, you know, use your any kind of how, whatever uh, conjunction you want there, right? Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. I'm going to stop right there at that comment. It's not a period, I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm a professor. I can stop wherever I want. Um, and so I'm going to stop with that comma right there. There's immense amount of hope just in that phrase. Right? Because if you just think that it's hopeless, I'm a fatalist, God has ordained something and nothing can be done about it, right? Nevertheless, even people still believed, even some of the authorities, right? We're fulfilling the scripture, but there's still hope, right? People still believed. People did. It's amazing, this, this mixture of truth and mercy all together just in these Old Testament passages and how John's unpacking it. Right? So if you are one of those people like me who's a little more on the truth side of things, feel the mercy of this. Right? If you're someone that's more on the mercy side, feel the truth of this. Right? They're both perfectly together right here in this passage. The other reason why I really like this passage, because as I was studying this this week, it kind of convicted me um, of a few things. One, it says, nevertheless, even some of those of the, the authorities believed. Right? And he goes, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more, more than the glory that comes from God. Now, when I initially read this and initially started studying, uh, I judged these people. Uh, I'm just going to confess. I was judging these people in the, in the New Testament, these people that were part of the crowd, part of the authorities. Like, how dare you buckle under political or uh, public pressure to deny Jesus? You had him right there. And then I realized, I do it all the time. <laughs> so I'm no better off than these people, right? Whoever they are, these authorities. And I want to show you a few things here. Um, you know, first, we're going through the scriptures may be fulfilled. But second, I want you to think about what I would consider like the long game that Jesus has for us, that God has for us. The long arc of redemption, as some people say, or the long arc of sanctification. Because I think there's even still hope in this passage. Even though John kind of puts it in the negative light, if you fast forward to Acts chapter 6, 
It says that priests were even now becoming obedient to the faith. And it says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And a lot of scholars and theologians tie those priests with these same authorities in John chapter 12, right? And that gives me immense hope because John is very clear in John 12 that these authorities, these priests believed, but they suffered from wanting the glory of man, right? But Acts makes it clear there were priests that became obedient to the faith over time, right? That's that language right there. And so my hope is, yeah, they probably had a really immature faith, and they're really scared of getting killed in the moment from confessing Jesus, right? But if you look just a few months later, they're becoming more obedient to the faith. And that gives me great hope for my own life when I do suffer from the fear of man, that God is still working in me and can work in me. Let me give you another example of someone that's probably uh, a little more clear for us. Um, he's a man named Peter. You guys, anybody, anybody know who Peter is? Anyone? Let's get interactive here. Okay, I got one, two, three, good. You guys know your Bible a bit? Okay, so Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. He's one of his close disciples, one of the three, all right? Jesus told him, you are going to be the rock that I'm going to build my church on, all right? And then... Coming to, we're about to get there in John, and uh, Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to get arrested, and I'm going to The one die. that stands up is like, oh, heck no, right? And then what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. And then he tells him, you are going to deny me three times before I die after my arrest. And Peter's like, no way. And guess what? Peter does. He buckles under the pressure from the glory of man. He is scared of what people will think about him. And he's one of Jesus' closest friends. Right? So if you read this judgmentally, just think of Peter. Think of your own heart. Right? And guess what Jesus does? Comes back, resurrects, and he gives Peter the opportunity to still say he loves Jesus. It's an amazing story of redemption for one of Jesus' closest friends. And then Peter obviously has a purpose after that, and he just... He's great through Acts, right? And so if we look at this passage and we're like, yeah, yeah, some of the authorities believed, great. But look at them. Oh, gosh, they weren't publicly professing Jesus because they were scared of the Pharisees. And I was like, well, so was Peter. <laughs> and I'm sometimes scared of people too, right? But thank God that he plays the long game, right? He plays the long game. It reminds me of this song uh, by an uh, artist named Shane and Shane, uh, Shane Bernard, Shane Everett. And it came out in 2012. It's called Future Version. And I think we get into this trap, right? We get into this trap where we believe that God is going to love a future version of us, but not the current version of us, right? And that's also what I want to take home from this, right? So in this song, it's a, it's a conversation between someone and God. And the someone is saying, I truly believe that you're just going to love a future version of me. You would not love me now because I'm, I'm buckling under the pressure of sin. I, am, uh, I love the glory of man more than I love your glory. And then in the song, this is God's response. It says, you I love regardless of the things you've said and done. No mistake can change my mind. Come seek and find my love is yours right now. For those authorities in John that believed but were scared, this was true for them too, right? Jesus still loved them deeply, still to die on the cross for those men. 
It also reminds me of a verse, one of my favorite verses, and funny enough, uh, Josh actually quoted it this morning, uh, Romans uh, 8.38, and it says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How comforting is that, right? And I want you to read that into John 12, right? All of scripture in here. Because those men who we, I was judging when I was reading this, I was like, man, that's me. But then I look at truth, and I'm like, no, God loves me even when I buckle under the pressure to, under the glory of man, right? I love the glory of man. I want some of that. But God still loves me. But you know what? He doesn't want me to stay right there, though. He wants me to continue on, just like in Acts, just like with Peter, he wants me to love his glory more than I love the glory of man. You see the juxtaposition of how this is working, where Jesus says, I'm doing this for God's glory. And then John comes back and says, these men love the, the glory of man more than God's glory. Walk in Jesus, and you will start loving God's glory more. And so that sets us up for the third phase. And so uh, we have this interaction with the crowd and then we have John kind of explaining to us unbelief, but then I see immense hope in all of this for all of us, even when we struggle with unbelief and the glory of man. And then it comes into the last public cry of Jesus. Now, a lot of scholars and theologians say this is not actually to the same crowd. It's just like a cry out publicly before everything zooms into this intimate time. And some theologians even say this is put here to actually cry out to us, all right? It's the cry out publicly to the world of his last public words um, as, a, as a sermon. It says, in 44, it says, And then Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me uh, sees him who sent me. So right here, Jesus immediately, his last cry is saying, I am God. I am the substance of God. I am the second person of the trinity right if you see me you see god i am the physical embodiment of god i am fully god and fully man when you see me you see him i like the quote from one of our church fathers and i'm going to get his name wrong it's a uh, crisis tom i think and it says this it says it is though one should say, he that takes water from the river does not take from the river, but from the spring that supplies the river. I love that analogy when I think about Jesus. Jesus is God. He is the substance of God, and he wants us to know that, right? So when he's preaching, his words are not from him, but from God, right? And so then he goes on, and he says, Next thing I want you to remember is I am the light of the world so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, right? Again, appealing to the imagery of light again and again. I am the one that brings light to the world. And if you have any interest in John 8, 12, I actually got to preach on that in June and it was awesome. I loved it and it was fun. So go listen to that one. Uh, but he, again, he comes in and says, I came in the world as light, so that whoever believes in me who will not remain in darkness, right, may not remain in darkness. So if you believe in me, all things are going to be revealed to you. The truth is going to be revealed. You just need to believe and then walk in that light and let things be revealed to you over time, that sanctification process. 
And then Jesus has this amazing statement that kind of caps off a lot of this and what he's been saying. He goes, and he goes, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now we'll get to verse 48 in a second, but I want to stop here. Jesus came to save. He did not come to judge. The work of the cross is a saving work. It's not a judgmental work. If you feel like you're under judgment, go to the cross. Right? Jesus does not sit on your shoulder all day long, looking at what you do and judging you all day long. Right? That's not what he does. He comes to save you from that world. He comes to save you out of judgment. Right? That's his purpose. Why? To glorify God. But he comes to save us. He doesn't come to judge us. Right? Even those that hear his word and does not keep them, he doesn't judge you. Right? He came to save you. That's why he's speaking the word. The word that he is saying is like, if you don't believe in the words I say, I'm not judging you. And we'll get to verse 45 in a second, or 48 in a second. But he's saying, I came to save. That's my purpose. As the second person of the Trinity, as the only son of God, I came into this world to save. Amazing, amazing. Do you guys remember those wristbands from like the 90s? I don't know if they're still around. The WWJD wristbands? Anybody remember those? Yeah? What would Jesus do? Those were really interesting reminders, but they could also turn into judgment handcuffs, right? All of a sudden, you're always looking at, what would Jesus do? Well, I'm not doing it, so he must be judging me right now, right? That's not why Jesus came. He came to save. He didn't come to judge. We put that judgment on ourselves, and that's what we see in 48, Jesus then backs this up with truth. So he, goes, he has this great merciful statement. I did not come into the world to judge, but to save. But then he wants to make sure he backs it up with the most perfect truth after the most perfect mercy. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So he has this beautiful, merciful statement, and then he has this beautiful statement of truth. If you do reject my words, I don't judge you. The word judges you. You've heard it. What you do with it is going to be your judgment. You guys see that little nuance right there? Our response to Jesus' invitation, the drawing of the cross, our response is between life and death. And if we want to live under judgment, you just need to reject him. But he's not the one judging you. He's the one providing the way of salvation. We are judging ourselves basically, by rejecting his word. The word is judging us. The other interesting thing about this statement, uh, this is where the themes of mercy and truth come out for me, is this is a perfect public bookend to the beginning of John. John 1.14 says this. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is a gracious, merciful Savior but not at the expense of truth, right? They're both 
perfectly intertwined in Jesus, and we get it from this passage right here. I came to save. It's a merciful act. You don't deserve to be saved. I promise. I don't deserve to be saved. I promise. Despite that, Jesus came in the world to save us, an undeserving people. And if we reject that free gift, the judgment is on us from the word spoken. Right? So Jesus appeals to his grace. He does not come to judge, but he cannot do it at the expense of truth. Right? He, has, he holds both perfectly. And so what do we do with all this? <laughs> it's a lot. Believe me, this is a lot going through these verses. I just want to point out a few things for us. Right? Uh, for those of us in Christ, if you're in this room and you believe in Jesus, Jesus and you, you believe Jesus is your Savior, you have come to that cross and you have said, yes, that is the full sufficiency for me. I want you to hear a few things. First, Nothing, nothing can disqualify us from our faith. Nothing. Just in Romans 8.38, just like the authorities that John is talking about, you know, who become the priests who become more obedient in our faith, if you feel like you're weak in your faith right now, that doesn't mean you're disqualified from the grace of Jesus. It doesn't. It just means God has more work to do in you, and that's all of us, Right? He's playing the long game of redemption with us, the long game of sanctification, right? So even if you feel that pressure from the, from the glory of man, like in our jobs, in the park, Sprouts, Natural Grocers, Walmart even, Target, who cares, right? Whatever store you go to, and you feel like you deny Jesus when the opportunity comes up, just know God still loves you. That hasn't disqualified you from the faith. Right? Just look at the examples we have in Scripture. And I would say second, for those of you in Jesus, look at Jesus as a Savior, not a judge. Right? When you're struggling with something, don't think Christ is sitting there heaping judgment upon you. No, he's not. He's heaping mercy upon you. If you're struggling with sin, confess it and go to him. He will forgive you. He always will. And he is going to give you his Holy Spirit to help you walk through it. And he's going to give you a community of faith called the church to help you walk through it. So you can pursue him more. Why? Because God's going to get glory through your redeemed lives. Beautiful, right? Tap into that. Now, I want to say this. Uh, this is it's hard for me to say from the pulpit, but I have to say it. For those of you that are not in Christ, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, right, he does not come to judge you. But you've heard the word, right? The word will judge you. And so just please, like, think deeply about these things. Think deeply about the person and nature of Jesus and what he came to do, right? He is pleading with you, even in these scripture, to believe in him. Search the scriptures. Know that he is God and know that he came to die a sinner's death to take your sin upon him so that you may have eternal life. That's why he came to earth. Jesus did not come to earth to be a good moralist, right? His ultimate purpose was to save you so God could receive glory. God does not give, get glory from us being great moral people. He gets glory from us reflecting the redemption of his son. So if you are not in Christ, I pray, I pray that you would think deeply about these things. And if you have questions, great. We all have questions. I have 
plenty of questions left in my life. I'm only 40-something years old, and so I have plenty of questions that I want answered before I die. So if you have questions, let's talk. Let's doubt together. That's fine. But don't leave here just being flippant with this, okay? Okay, for all of us, Jesus' agony that he was feeling as he was going to the cross was for us to have salvation, to bring glory to God. Believe in a really big God who cares deeply about his glory, right? He cares so much about his glory and his own renown that he was willing to give up his own son so that we may have life because that's what brings him glory, right? When we get life through his son. It's amazing, amazing news. It's called the gospel. It's the good news. It's the best news ever. All right, so we are going to wrap up. I'm going to pray, and we're going to enter a time of communion. But as we pray, I just want you to reflect on these things. Like wherever you're sitting here, whatever you're thinking about, whoever you are, right, whatever you're going on in your personal life, maybe you're buckling under the pressure of the fear of man. School's going on. It's about to start, right? It's hard in the classroom. I get it. I've been there. Just know if you're in Christ, he still loves you. And if you're not in Christ, please think about these things as we pray. Uh, Father God, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much for the ability to bring your word today. Lord, I pray that we would listen to it, we'd hear your word. Uh, Lord, we'd hear your heart for us, that you desire for us uh, to be removed from the yoke of slavery, to move into uh, the freedom that comes through the cross. Uh, Lord, I pray, Lord, that uh, as we take communion here in a minute, we would be mindful of these things, that we would remember your finished work. Uh, so that we could have freedom, joy in you uh, through your son. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.